Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Legal Weekly Wine, where we discuss the, the week's hottest legal topics. This week, we are doing a special edition. It is Monday. It's not Friday. It's Thanksgiving week for 2023. And we decided to do Monday because over this weekend, we have been crunching through the actual case from Colorado, where a district court judge has now ruled that the 14th Amendment does not prohibit former President Trump from being put on the ballots. However, she raised some interesting other issues that spanned the course of over 100 pages. So we want to dive into that. We don't want to let it um, sit here for too long. It is Monday, so we've looked over it over the weekend and are back to you with an interpretation of what the judge's ruling means, what the implications are, and how it compares to the recent ones from Minnesota and Michigan. My name is Virginia Tarani. I am the CEO of The Law Unscripted, as well as a full-time practicing attorney in Virginia, D.C., and Maryland. I'm with Tarani Law, LLC, because you never need a lawyer. Tell you, you do. do. <laughs> <laughs> and the person who is with me with that rounding support here is uh, Dr. John Vile. From the, the, he's the dean of the Honors College from Middle Tennessee State University, who's a preeminent scholar in the Constitution, the amending process, and constitutional law. Thanks for joining us again. It's a pleasure. All right. It's been a great weekend. Oh my, for you, <laughs> I tell you, and for those of you who do not know Dr. Vile, um, he truly is a preeminent scholar. And a lot of that means that he spends almost every waking moment, morning, noon, and night, weekday and weekend, reviewing things, processing things, and writing. Uh, how, how many words do you write per day? I try to do a thousand a day, but the last week or two, I slumped down a little bit, but I was able, so while we're talking about writing, mm -hmm. for people who want some follow-up, uh, MTSU hosts what's known as the First Amendment Encyclopedia, and we have posted an article under news saying Colorado ruling that Trump incited insurrection could strengthen hand in other criminal cases. Excellent. Okay. So that's a free resource for anyone to, to find. And that's published then through the Free Speech Center yes, with the First Amendment um, Encyclopedia. Yes. Excellent. So with your preeminent work um, through the Constitution and the amending process. Spectacular, I'd say. Spectacular, isn't it? <laughs> Best reviewers of the last program. <laughs> and if you don't know what we're talking about, go back and watch it. It was pretty funny stuff. Um, yes, the spectacular review. I, I think we have done at least two prior shows on the topic of whether this 14th Amendment, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, actually is a disqualification clause, meaning that former President Trump would not be allowed on the ballots, on the idea that he was part of doing insurrection or rebellion— against the country, and or that he was supporting giving care and aid to, um, giving comfort to those who do. So we've done two of those. I'm going to, at the end, um, end credits, I will put links to both of those so that you can find those if you want to catch up from where we started. But because we've, we've been on it pretty much since the beginning, we do want to circle back around with these last 
two weeks of decisions where the courts, not only the the legal scholars, not only the academics are, are reviewing this issue, but the courts have had their first chance to review the issue. And we want to find out what's happening. So, Dr. Vile, why don't you lay the groundwork as to the three different cases that have come up so far? Let me give a little background even before that. Sure. So we, and this is fundamental when we've dealt with this, so we don't mm -hmm. need to do it a lot. But Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was adopted 1868 in response to the rebellion that had led to the, to the Civil War. And it was most clearly designed to exclude individuals who, having taken an oath to uphold the Constitution, had then instead supported the Confederate Constitution. And so sometime back... Uh, and this is what's fascinating to me, two professors, William Baud and Michael Stokes Paulson, uh, both of whom are fairly well recognized, particularly right. the latter, uh, published an article called The Sweep and Force of Section 3. And I say published it, they sent it to the University of Pennsylvania Law Review, which is forthcoming in 2024. Oh, And it was over 100 pages. Mm -hmm. uh, Well-reasoned argument, I think as to the continuing applicability of Section 3. Uh, it said it didn't just apply to the people in the Civil War. It would apply to anyone in similar circumstances. And what's interesting is that has been met by a counter-argument. And let me turn to that page. And while you're Josh, looking up this yeah, one, no, when no, we've no. talked before, we've talked about the articles proposing and as proponents to this, this interpretation, but this is the first time on the program we've officially discussed a counter-argument. Well, I've mentioned some of the arguments in passing without citing a specific article, but the primary article, and there are others, is by Josh Blackman and Seth Barrett Tillman. And they have an article called Sweeping and Forcing the President into Section 3, in which, and it's, I think, 234 pages or thereabouts. <laughs> it has not been published, but is scheduled forthcoming in the Texas Review of Law and Politics also in 2024. Okay. And what's fascinating, both have posted it on something called, I believe it's SRN or SS, whatever it is. It's posted online, you can download it, but it hasn't actually been officially published. But they've actually begun answering one another and modifying their arguments based. So it's it's really a wonderful colloquy, you know, between mm -hmm. two, well, four scholars, all of whom are, you know, noteworthy people, all who raise very interesting arguments. Uh, as you know, my background in college was in debate. Uh, you can almost do a flowchart. You know, this oh. this this article says this, and this one responds here, mm. and here's the rebuttal, and here's the counter rebuttal. So it's nice. a lot of it's tedious. Uh, I doubt that most readers are going to want to subject themselves to both art, but yeah. it would I almost actually thought of, you know, if you did a, if you wanted to do a course in constitutional interpretation, mm. of course there are many of them. It'd be good to have these two side by side and say, here's how legal arguments proceed. And one of the fascinating things is, as I understand it, I think all of these authors are pretty much believe in what we would call original intent. Both of them think, or all of them think, it's important to know what did the, you know, what did the framers in this case of the Fourteenth Amendment mean, 
and also often closely allied with that, what do the words actually say? Right. And yet they come to radically different conclusions. Uh, and both of them, uh, both articles somewhat hedge their bets, uh, some, sometimes better than others, but often they'll say, we can't disprove this, but they can't prove it either. So the jury is still out, sure. still sort of collecting evidence. And somehow judges are now supposed to interpret this. <laughs> Well, that's right. And that's and that's what we had. So as you mentioned, there are three cases so far, one in, that I know of that have been decided, one in Minnesota, one in Michigan, and then this case in Colorado. Uh, the Michigan and Minnesota cases, at the very least, have said they don't think the issue is ripe. That meaning right. we don't think it's the time to decide it now. And in part, this seems to rely on these are primary elections where generally uh, states don't have as much authority. You know, they're basically under the control of political parties. Now, there, there's a and classic in case. control of the state politics right. and right. state laws. Right. And so there's they seem to be saying in the least we don't want to intervene now. It's not clear whether they would intervene if you were trying to take Trump off a general election or not. That's a little bit more, and that that goes to a host of questions, mm -hmm. not all of which um, this Colorado case. So, so you have those two cases, and then in the Colorado case, you have what I guess Mao Zedong would say is two steps forward and one step backward. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Both sides can claim a victory, and both sides have. True. Trump can say. This decision decided that I am not an officer of the United States, and that's where the language of Section Article of 14th Amendment, Section 3 points. And because he's not an officer of the United States, this doesn't apply to him. I get to stay on the ballots. Right. But if you're on the other side, in the process, the judge meticulously looked at the evidence, relying heavily, by the way, on the the congressional committee, uh, which mm -hmm. basically decided that yes, President Trump had in fact engaged in an insurrection on January the sixth. Now, there's one little caveat that could help Trump, in which the court says we're not use we we don't think you can convict him on the basis of what he didn't do. And there's been a lot of discussion of this because oh, the day of the, the day of the uh, demonstrations, insurrection, whatever you want to call it, Trump apparently wanted to march down to the Capitol and may have been prevented from doing so by certainly the was Secret discouraged Service. from doing so by the Secret Service. And that's fairly new. That information also was coming out almost in real time on Friday, where at no. least I was seeing it for the first time. Of there's no, an audio the, uh, clip. Cassidy Hutchison, remember, in her testimony before the January 6th committee, had this story, which was hearsay. She was getting it from someone who had heard it from a Secret Service agent who apparently indicated that he had actually, or that Trump had tried, one of them had tried to grab the steering wheel from the other. Yeah, but so, I think that the difference, though, is this is the first time that the public has been get, given ability to hear Trump saying that he wanted to go down and the Secret no, Service had to uh, stop well, him. The, the speech, I mean, he has said, he, well, he has said, right, there may be, 
at on the day of, he <laughs> told the crowd that I'm coming with you. Right. Yeah. Now, I think subsequently, you're right. I think there's subs, been subsequent testimony, or not testimony, but speeches where Trump has said, yeah, I plan to be there and right. the Secret Service wouldn't let me do it. So he's partially confirmed that story. But, but to, to get to the point, he got home maybe at one o'clock or he got back to the maybe 1230. Whenever he got back to the White House, the reports seemed to indicate from the January 6th committee that he was in his dining room watching television, saw the break in at the Capitol, saw what was happening and basically did nothing for three or four hours. And some people say, well, that in and given that he had the responsibility to execute the law, that's a sign that he was participating. This court said, then they come, they have a sort of an interesting take on it. They say inaction by itself would not be sufficient to indict or to convict, but it might go to his mindset at the time. His you might, state of it mind. might be evidence that you can use as to overall. But just the fact that he did, and and that's probably pretty safe. I mean, there, it, what some people, and I think I think this is in the case. If it's not, it's in this article by uh, Blackman and Tillman that I mentioned. That what some people would regard as delay, other people would regard as deliberation. Mm. Um, and there are times where sometimes you know it. You might make things worse by intervening rather than actually helping. Right. So, but what's fascinating about this case, I mentioned the two steps forward, one step backward. So in Trump's behalf, we don't believe he's an officer of the United States. So they're buying. And by the way, she does not cite either of these articles as far as I can tell. I don't think she could because they weren't put into evidence. Well, Right. She cites art. She clearly cites arguments, particularly when you look at the Blackman Tillman article. They deal what they do is they look at every place in the Constitution that the word officer is used. And their argument, which the judge seems to buy, is that as strange as it sounds, that although he holds the top executive office in the land, he is not an officer under the Constitution. But and, he's subject to the constitutional well, laws. Right. I mean, the, right? the, the, the problem, right. No one is above the law. And that's, I think that's, that's the, the, the part of the Blackman and Tillman arguments are very, they're very micro. Mm. Look at this clause and this clause and, and and good micro. I mean, you know, usually there's a canon of constitutional in, interpretation that if you that words used in the Constitution are used to main, mean the same thing in, in, in different places. Right. And their meticulous look at this says each of these cases. And in fact, what's what's and I, I should have the text in front of me and I do not. But. The text of the of section three actually doesn't refer directly to the president at all. It refers to all persons who having previously taken an oath. And what's fascinating is the only oath that the that Trump has ever taken is for the presidency. 
other he people. He never had any other politics, rolling right. politics. Other, right. Well, most, almost maybe Zachary Taylor, no, because I don't think he voted until uh, he, well, but he would have had to take an oath as a member of, of, of the armed services. But however that may be, they they make some arguments, which what this judge does is she points to the provisions that they have laid out and says, this doesn't seem to include the president. This doesn't seem to include the president. So maybe he's an exception. But she goes on to say the president clearly participated in an insurrection against the United States. And if you are special counsel, Jack Smith, here's a precedent for you, right? Yes. Uh, here is another chip. Now, I will say one possible flaw in her argument is one could say, yes, you have a congressional committee that came to this conclusion, but you also had an impeachment hearing. I mean, he was impeached, but when the but Senate got- But not for the same thing. Well, but the impeachment did, the second impeachment largely dealt with events of January, January 6th. Okay. And the fact that he wasn't convicted, one might argue- would say the, the whatever the committee concluded is not necessarily definitive. However, in, in arguing the other side of right. that is a lot of the reason, at least, that I have seen and heard of people saying, well, it doesn't matter about the second impeachment because he was no longer president. That's we right. believe it was tossed out because it didn't matter anymore. It was That's just right. a show to try to prevent him in the future from running. Well, and there were also, it's very clear, and we've discussed this before, that a number of people who voted to exonerate, including uh, Mitch McConnell, mm. got on the floor of uh, Congress and said, you know, don't worry about it. If you think he's guilty, he's still going to be amenable to the courts. Uh, right. So, right, there, there are arguments either way, but it, but it's fascinating that legal research, you know, legal research sort of percolates into these decisions sometimes. And, uh, and clearly, and she may have read those arguments and just didn't cite to them um, because they aren't technically published. Well, and she did cite attorneys' arguments in the cases, and they they almost surely have read, you know, these and many, and these are not the only people writing on this, but these are the two, in my judgment, weightiest, uh, you know, works out there right now on the subject. Well, okay. So let me, let me bring you back to this. Okay. So I understand, as I understand it, first she said Trump did engage in insurrection and rebellion. Yes. yes. But then she said, even if he did, or even though he did, yes, he still can be put on the ballot because he's not an officer of the Constitution he, or the right, country. He's not an officer of the United States, as that term is used in the Constitution. Okay, so it, with that, though, doesn't well, it seem again, laughable? Now, like, sure, it, it if seems, anyone okay, and, is and an here, officer, surely right. it's him. And, and that's And that was basically the argument in this original article that we cited, that it would be laughable to think that the president wasn't an officer. And yet, Blackman and Tillman say, look at the actual language. 
Mm -hmm. uh, the president is in a different, you know, usually it's officer under the Constitution okay. or a term such as that, which they say means, and you know, appoint such other officers. That's part of the language of the Constitution. Well, a president is not an appointed officer in that sense. Mm -hmm. And so what and, and here's in, in, a, in a sense, the beauty of this sort of as a confession, and I sort of hate it because uh, Tillman and I know we, we correspond from time to time. Oh, how fun. But I have often regarded his arguments as just somewhat arcane, and so who cares? I mean, 20, 10 or 20 years before Trump was elected president, he and others were looking at the argument as what is an officer of the United States? And it does show that we have a need for people who do that because right. it might be more consequential than we realize. And I'm sure this happens in criminal law all the time. You think somebody thinks they've drafted, you know, they've drafted a model piece of legislation and it turns out they put an and instead of or instead of an and or, right. you know, they used a term of art that is defined by a a Supreme Court decision in a somewhat different fashion than might sound on, on its face. So these are, they're very legitimate arguments. I, I find it hard to know where I come down. I mean, I, I, I certainly believe that no person is above the law. Right. Um, but is Trump amenable to prosecution under, under Section 3? Now, part of this comes down, here's another arcane legal okay, argument. But hold on, let me stop you there. I don't okay. know if it's he's amenable to prosecution because this is still just a civil case. It's the civil disqualification from the ballot well, right. versus okay. a prosecution, right? And both right. Both sets of of scholars here have long sections on whether a punishment and an exclusion are the same or whether they're different. Okay. So yes, there's that's part of the argument. But much of the argument centers on enforceability. So we have discussed on this program before that section five of the section five of the 14th amendment right. says that Congress is responsible or Congress has the power to enforce this amendment. And so the question is, is this an exclusive power exercised by Congress and does it have to be exercised by legislation? To my knowledge, there's no legislation that Congress has enacted which would specifically give anybody specific authority to deny a person's right, uh, right to be on a ballot. Right. And there's some fascinating cases, and I knew some of these cases, and I've always dismissed them. So, mm. for example, the Constitution says you have to be 30 to be a U.S. senator. We have mm -hmm. said senators who were elected prior to being 30 and some who even served prior to being 30 because nobody enforced it against them. And there are okay. other rules. You know, Congress has to have a quorum, but Congress often goes without a quorum as long as nobody raises their hand and says, Objection. I don't see a quorum here. <laughs> so it has, I mean, again, these are, they seem like constitutional byways that lead to nowhere, but they actually turn out being somewhat consequential. It's sort of like, you know, reading the Bible sometimes. We read it differently. Well, uh, it's, in a word that or two. One, it, or, seems, it, it seems easier for me to look at the Bible and to say, 
well, this was translated from Hebrew or from Greek. And, you know, maybe someone put an and and it was an in, but it's definitely not, he- you know, we don't speak Hebrew or Greek anymore. How do we know for sure? Whereas right. the United but States. But a lot of biblical in- scholars would say that's why we learn Greek and Hebrew. <laughs> right. But. The Constitution wasn't written in Greek or Hebrew and doesn't have to be interpreted into another language. Aren't we looking at English? No, no. but we're looking at 230-some-year-old English. And we're looking, you know, we're looking at a Constitution. Now, 14th, well, even in the 14th Amendment, women still don't have the right to vote. 18-year-olds don't have the right to vote. Uh, there are a lot of, you know, a lot of things that are not nearly senators were still appointed rather than elected. So there are a lot of elements, you know, you still have to place yourself back in time with in continuity with the rest of legal developments throughout American history. And that's difficult to do. Goodness. OK, so let me let me bring you to another question. Okay. When <laughs> when we're dealing and this is Ask the expert day, right? Yeah, um, right. <laughs> I, I think you better call uh, Tillman. Tillman and Blackman and uh, Olson and uh, Bowd here. Mm-hmm. So the question that I have now is, all right, so the 14th Amendment under this insurrection and rebellion clause does not disqualify Trump. Let's say we continue. No other court finds him disqualified, even in a general, you know, general election, et cetera. But would the findings of fact that he engaged in insurrection or rebellion or future findings um, by other courts or through a criminal process. I know where you're headed, but go ahead. <laughs> would that be able to be translated into the word treason? Which okay. would be prosecution-oriented. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> According to Seth and Blackman, this is reading this 234 pages or skimming it has paid off. They say that treason only deals with foreign enemies. They make a distinction between insurrection and treason, and this doesn't deal with a foreign enemy. If anything, it would be a domestic. So all of these things that you would think are just obvious on the surface, sometimes they're not. Okay. Okay, so we wouldn't be able to charge Jonathan, no, wait, what's the Confederate, Jefferson Davis, goodness, I'm blanking. Jefferson and they cite Davis? a case on that, right? So um, he's the he's the new president of the Confederate States, right? In the Civil right. War, he was yes. So did any court determine whether he was a traitor? There, there is a case on it, and that's where I got bogged down. That was about a page one hundred and fifty. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of cases that Blackman and Tillman cite, okay, in which they claim um, that. No, he was not amenable under that particular clause. Now, it's it's more complicated, if I remember, because comp, there, there's a provision, may have been part of Section 3, that permitted Congress to make exclusions and get extend pardons to people who had done it. And I can't remember, I believe Davis may have been among those who was so pardoned. Okay. Uh, and so 
one interpretation is they just decided the case was moot. The, the, it's very fascinating. The two sets of scholars are arguing over a case from that time period with one of them saying it was an awful, the, the Paulson and Blackman's or Paulson and Bowd saying it was an awful decision. And the other saying, well, there's nothing wrong with the decision. No one questioned it till you did 200 years later <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> or 150 <laughs> years later. So again, it, it's just, it's just too bad that we can't, mm. you know, we, we, we need a Lincoln Douglas debate in which each of these scholars gets up and gives an hour speech. Uh, and then, you know, we sort of tag team it. Um, nice. I, what do you think? I like it. <laughs> in terms of attention span, how many minutes do you think the average citizen would watch? Uh, not many. Not unless <laughs> not long. No. Unless they're all screaming at each other as yeah, if, if you know, watching the de a, presidential debates. Yeah, we need to reduce it to sound bites. <laughs> but it's it's I mean, it is fascinating to see how, you know. We basically resurrected a clause that I, I don't ever remember. In my classes, I would, you know, when we dealt with the 14th Amendment, I would probably mention Section 3, but we never, just didn't worry about it. Right. And it sort of comes out of the blue. And one of the arguments, I think one of the most compelling arguments that Blackman and Tillman make for sort of holding our horses is that this this argument seems primarily directed at one person, mm -hmm. Donald Trump, and he probably deserves it, but you want to be careful that you don't build an entire constitutional edifice on the basis of what you think it will do in a single case, because it might come back to bite you. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I, I think they, they believe that that the original article is just a little too eager to try to intervene legally in a way that so far political intervention really hasn't worked. And, okay. you know, and I think if it goes, you know, we've talked before about the, the political questions, Doc. Right. And what, what we don't have right now is we don't really have a need for a Supreme Court to intervene. Where we would, where the Supreme Court would intervene, would be if if one of these, well, if a couple of these cases are appealed, and if appeals courts come to different conclusions, right? If the if, let's say the Colorado uh, Supreme Court decides, or an or the, a, 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 a U.S. appellate court right. would decide that Judge Wallace is wrong and that Trump shouldn't appear on the ballot. And these other two cases say, well, he has every right to do so, then the Supreme Court might want to intervene. But the longer we wait, and particularly if, as Trump's attorneys have argued in more than one occasion, that we ought to wait till after the general election and then decide what court wants to be back in the position of Bush versus Gore and having to essentially be blamed or credited for, for who removing won the a president, or yeah. yeah, and that's where you know typically this is the political question is up to the elected branches, and to my knowledge, you know the only well we have action by Congress in impeaching the president, but by the House, but then we have counteraction by the Senate in which they didn't convict it, mm -hmm. and my guess is 
as much as I would hope everything could be resolved by law, right? Um, that it's not going to be. It's going to be resolved by the American people, you know, first by the Republican Party. Do you want to renominate this man? And then by the American people, assuming that he is renominated, do you want to vote for him to be a president again? So it may be that all this, you know, now the legal argument, I think where it can be helpful if people were to read such cases, and I doubt that most do, but to read a case in which a federal judge says, we believe the president is guilty of insurrection or aiding insurrection, I mean, that's, you know, that's pretty serious opinion. And as you know, one of the things that I did in my article was compare this case. There's a case. Okay, good. You're going to do this. I was going to ask you. Okay, right. Yeah, there's a there's a district court case in 1975 called Murphy versus Ford. It comes out of Michigan, and a lawyer there questioned the right of Gerald Ford to extend an unlimited pardon to President Nixon for everything that he had done connected to the Watergate break-in and the subsequent okay. cover-up. And he said, you know, this is outrageous. You ought to have to specify what the offenses are, you're letting a criminal go free, uh, yada, yada, yada. Um, what the judge did is the judge said, president's power to pardon is basically unlimited, except in cases of impeachment, and, and Nixon had not been impeached. And state. Right. Well, that's right. And state offenses, which is makes the Georgia case particularly important for uh, in, in, the, in the Trump situation. But what the judge said was, it's pretty clear that President Nixon engaged, Nixon and his forces engaged in attempting to subvert an election. Uh, was highly undemocratic. He was a very, very bad boy, but that doesn't mean that Ford can't pardon him. And so it, it's a similar... Nixon won the case in the sense that if it had gone otherwise, he could have gone to jail, could have been indicted and, and convicted, probably. But you get this judge basically acting in the role of a censor. And this goes to something that I know is dear to your heart, right? The distinction between, I'm probably mispronouncing it, the ratio descendendi. Oh, good heavens. Yes, is that about right? <laughs> You know what it is? I, okay, you know I what do Oberdick not know is. how to pronounce it. Okay, but you know what it is, and you know what Obiter Dicta is. That one for sure. So Obiter Dicta is, consists of the parts of a decision which are basically sermonizing on the part of the judge but don't directly relate to the outcome. Right, it's not so, a holding of the court. Right, so in this case, the holding for purposes of the trial, this, right, this particular case, is that you're gonna, we're not going to withhold his name from the ballot. But on a related, now, that being said, Trump had argued that he hadn't engaged in insurrection. So right. her argument was relevant to knocking to that part. But she could have just said, she could have cut directly to the chase, maybe, and just said, my view is that the president is an officer of the United States, so this doesn't apply. So we don't need to even look at the question as I to whether she he could have insurrection. She, she easily could, could have. have. Um, 
she did what I probably would. You know, if you get a platform, you use it, right? Right. And by the way, you haven't introduced your wine. I have a special vintage uh, Pepsi today. <laughs> I ate my lunch later than usual, so uh, my water has been replaced by something a little stronger. Uh, nice, nice. Um, you're right. So I have, because we're doing this special so soon on the heels of last week's, and because it was so good, I brought back um, the Misfit Winery Watermelon Flavor. Oh, my. <laughs> I, I did not open a brand new one today. I, I just decided, you know what? Today was the day for more watermelon. Well, it's Thanksgiving week. I don't know if I associate watermelon with Thanksgiving. but <laughs> It's better uh, than the Thanksgiving turkey, let me tell you. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe so. Now, I'll have another bottle of wine for that. By the, so, I, I so will did continue you see Hagar the Horrible yesterday? I think it was Hagar the Horrible. Oh, how the you, comic? One no. Of them that, one, one of the cartoons, how do you know that, that turkeys want to be eaten? How? They keep saying gobble, gobble. Yeah, okay. A new low oh, in the low on <laughs> We have reached a very new low. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, maybe it'll lighten people up for Thanksgiving, right? You know, they need something to lighten them up because the food sure isn't going to. <laughs> and, uh, yes, yeah, so, wow. That was, it's, it's a good, I think this is a great review of what's happening in the three cases, why they've gone that way. And I think it is a strong warning to both sides that the last has not been heard yet, right. that this is still an open issue. Um, the only other thing I would like to mention is I know this morning for Monday, we mm -hmm. have had hearing a hearing on the gag order, um, the DC gag order in right. the Trump case involving Jack Smith with the D.C. Right. federal case about the, the election interference that I will be hanging on. And it might come out before you and I speak again uh, after might. Thanksgiving. But I did want to remind everybody that that's going on if they didn't know about it. And, and so people will know. I mean, this the, the key here is you have the right of the legal system to proceed without particularly intimidation of witnesses, right. but possibly even without intimidation of prosecutors uh, or jurors against what is clearly a robust right, especially for political figures, to engage in speech. And that, right. that that's probably the one thing that I didn't emphasize enough here uh, in this Colorado decision is that she does make a point mm of saying, you know, it's a really high bar that, has, that, that a person has to reach who's at this level to call it an incitement, but she believed that it had been reached. Right. And in, in the gag order case, we have First Amendment issues where yes. Trump's attorneys are saying, and I, <laughs> I have trouble with this, but I'll say in general, then I'll go specific. They they're arguing that by placing a gag order on him, even from speaking about the prosecutors and their clerks and their staff, that this is a violation of his First Amendment freedoms of political speech. Right. And so to me, they're characterizing all of his speech 
as political speech, which I have a hard time thinking of. um, Because it's hard for me to believe that any political candidate at any and all times before an election, that all of their speech is political speech. That's hard for me to get around um, or behind, get behind. And then the other thing is the opposite side is saying, Yes, but the First Amendment freedoms for everyone have certain limitations, including, you know, no threats or, you know, incitement to violence, no threats. Those are not allowed, you know, whatever your name is. So why should they be different? And is it overly broad or overly strict for, you know, the application to President Trump? So there's a fascinating article in something called Justitia. Oh, yes. Which publishes articles by, you know, noted scholars. And I, 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 I had it in front of me and it cannot locate it immediately. But one of them makes the argument that Trump's legal strategy overall is similar to the trial of the Chicago 7, mm. which occurred, I believe, back in 1968, in which basically the, you know, the defendants would basically come in in clown suits. I'm exaggerating a little bit. They come in with Vietnamese flags or whatever. And then they would just, they would call the judge Julie instead of, you know, your, your honor, judge Hoffman and whatever. And they just tried to, they tried to make a spectacle that would appeal politically rather than worrying about whether they were going to be sent to jail or not. And there seemed to be elements of that. And it, to the extent that there are, it's particularly depressing because you sort of expect this behavior from, you know, from radicals who want to overthrow the system or, you know, have some great policy cause, but you don't typically expect the president of the United States to try to make a mockery uh, or a spectacle out of the judicial system. And every time he attacks, you know, I mean, some attacks, it's, it's certainly appropriate to say, you know, I believe I'm being attacked because I'm a, I'm a Republican or I, because I'm standing up for family values or whatever. But that argument becomes a little, a little worn if you're making it for, you know, it means I can hide documents. It means I can go after witnesses. Uh, it means I can intervene in elections and the like. Mm-hmm. So it's, Again, it's a fascinating time to be alive, and that's not always a good thing. <laughs> yeah, no, I, that's that's exactly what I was saying this weekend to one of my friends. Is I says, I was like, "Wow, it's so exciting to be alive," and she's like, "Really?" Because yeah. it, it feels a little scary to me. And I said, "Oh, um, okay." Legally speaking, as an attorney, this is you know historical. The, yes. Uh, but so was World War II. That's how so. I felt during Watergate. I mean, it was mm-hmm. it, it was riveting to watch the testimony and see the revelations and can that really be happening? Right. And yet there were real concerns that, you know, here was someone who was moving an elected presidency into what appeared to be an autocracy. And, you know, in Nixon's case, he, you know, in a famed interview after he left office with uh, David Frost, he basically says if the president does it, it can't be illegal. Well, that and and to be absolutely clear, Blackman and Tillman do not, as far as I can tell, they're not making the argument that the president is above the law. They're just saying this particular part of the Constitution we don't think applies to the president to in this particular case. Nice. 
All right. Well, thank you for breaking down those um, three to 400 pages for us. We appreciate <laughs> you doing that for us so we didn't have to. Um, I did read some of it. I, I'm afraid I was not able to get through all of the pages, but thank you for your analysis. And You're welcome. Yeah, for the excitement before Thanksgiving. So now all of us have something to talk about over the table, right? Are we going to talk about it over Thanksgiving <laughs> table? Oh my goodness. Okay. We have to be very selective in who we invite, okay? <laughs> we will. It may be just me and thee, and I'm not sure about thee, okay? Right. <laughs> well, have fun, those of you who are with us for Thanksgiving. They might just pile out in droves. Nobody will want to eat with us. Well, that could be. Well, all the more for, all the more for us. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Well, happy Thanksgiving and happy Thanksgiving to all of you. Enjoy the rest of the week and these interesting legal opinions, and we will catch you next time through the Legal Weekly Wine.